Hey, this is Brian. Today's podcast guest, Tom McCarthy. This is a repeated episode. Two years ago, to the day basically, he won himself a handful of Academy Awards and, you know, the best picture and screenplay. And that was a great time to bring it back because his path there was not easy. Uh, the movie before Spotlight uh, was not considered a commercial or artistic release at the time of release. Uh, though um, history may be more kind to it than that. So this is Tom McCarthy from about a year and a half ago, two years ago, and a new episode will be up next week. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Quick special shout out to your editor, my editor, Tom McCardle. I can't shout out to your editor? Oh, yeah, you can shout out Quick Tom shout McCardle. out to Tom McCardle right at the top. Yes, of course. I, I totally misunderstood it. I misunderstood. Is that common for you? Do you misunderstand everything that happens around that's you all the time? Is it the secret to your success? That's how easy I am to communicate with. That's great to it know. The, the actors must thing. love that. Yeah, yeah. You continue your shout out because he should get one. He's a big fan of your show. And I'm a huge fan of Tom's. There you guys. And that's why right. I'm shouting out. You thought I was going to reveal a confidence you'd told me. Possibly. Which would be such a weird thing since off mic, I've never revealed a confidence no, you've no, told me. No, you're like a steel trap. And it wasn't even a confidence about Tom, which is even better. No, I know. Wow, so removed. We could start over, but I won't. No, keep this. Um, it's although, gold. Although Tom, yeah. who is an amazing editor and a, and a very dear friend, um, at times can be slightly paranoid, and this will set alarm bells off. But he'll you'll be, be able to tell him the story. I will, but he'll never believe me. That's he, even better. He'll ask me a hundred times, are you sure it wasn't me? Are you, are you sure the confidence wasn't about me? Three films from now, he'll say, I just want to talk about that confidence. That's kind of great. Yeah. And now there's no way. This is that. If nothing else from this podcast goes out into the world, this thing where you told me that weird secret about Tom and then said we couldn't talk about it, that's going out. <laughs> that is going out into the world. We should just stop now. I think we've killed it. Hey, listen, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. My guest today is the great Tom McCarthy, and he is the writer-director of movies that I have absolutely loved, like The Station Agent, The Visitor, Spotlight, which is coming out a few days from now, November 6th. And which for me is my vote for best movie of the year. I think the only movie that's even close to it is Steve Jobs. And they've all gotten enough awards, those people. I agree. Don't you think? How many awards can you have? How many can you even put up on a mantle? You did look silly after a while. And um, Tom's also an actor, you know, from his work in things like uh, The Wire and in a whole bunch of other stuff. And uh, he also is an Oscar-nominated uh, screenwriter for a little, a little film you might know as Up. Good movie. Hell of a movie, and I think off camera you told me you wrote that entire opening sequence yourself, didn't you? <laughs> the opening twelve was just you. I, I wasn't actually it? take credit for most of the artwork in the film now too. Those guys, they they, they don't really know what they're doing. That's up what there. I was thinking. Yeah. and it was your idea to cast Asner. Yeah, I got You got to do it all when you're there. This, they, I mean, that studio is barely holding it together. That's what I thought. Yeah, that's what I'd heard. Wait, was I not supposed to reveal that? No. Shit. At I'm this doing point, it again. just reveal it all. But um. Man, I, I got to say, I'm I'm so happy. You know, it was, I was starting to say this before we turn the mics on. You showed me Spotlight early. Like, I think, what, a, a couple months before you showed it, st began screening it for the world. Yeah, I think so, yeah. And I have to say, it was one of the most fun things for me because I told you that night, I mean, I knew what the people were going to say about it. I knew you had done it. Like, you had made a film that lived up to everything that you tried to do. And I'd heard the concept for the movie years before, and... 
it must feel incredible to have because it's it's so hard. You always set out with a, an idea in your head, a feeling you want to capture, and I imagine for you to actually have captured the thing you were going for must must feel incredible. Or can you see it yet? Uh, yeah, that's the, probably the second question. Maybe is more appropriate. I don't know if I can see it yet. You know, I think we're just. I'm feeling that the movie's working, and we've screened it enough now at festivals, and now for these special screenings for different groups. It it, it feels like first of all, it works for the people that we really wanted to make the movie for, which was the journalists and the survivors of, of, of abuse. I was going to say you don't mean journalists like the movie critics. You no. mean no? I want to be clear because people might not know. That's such a good point. Uh, I want to be really clear. That, that's how good you are at this. <laughs> you're, sa- you're saving me as I hang myself. The film is about the journalists in Boston who broke uh, the story about the archdiocese covering up the sexual abuse scandals. And you're talking about these heroic journalists who really dug incredibly deep to get that story to the world. And you're talking about the victims of that abuse when you're talking about the, the, yeah. the journalists and victims, right? Yeah, maybe we should start there. Yeah. So the film Spotlight is about the Spotlight team at the Boston Globe, this four-person investigative unit. And it deals with their 2001 investigation into exactly what you just explained. Um, and um, my co-writer and I, Josh Singer, sat down with these journalists probably three years ago now and Listen, you know, uh, sat down with them multiple times, went back and again and again to Boston, also sat down with some of the survivors of abuse. And, um, you know, I think when you distill the process down, I think our mantra was like, let's get it right so that when a journalist sees that, when an investigative journalist sees this film, he'll he'll think that we got it right, that we uh, we captured their world. And that's a tricky thing to capture, I think. Yeah, I'm so interested in how you did it and in, in, in how you manage to make something that is narratively compelling at the same time it's really granular in its exploration of how they did what they did. And I want to know how you thought about it. But I, I've been telling everybody about the film. You just sent me a link and I'm going to watch it for a second time tonight with Amy. And I have to say, it's really stayed with me. I remember like every minute from it. But I want to, I want to back up, Tom, because look, your, your career has been, um, you know, like one success after another, after another, but I want to start with failure because I think it's incredibly inspiring to me as somebody who tries to do this stuff that, you know, you've made this movie after the only true like kind of failure that you had as an, as an, as an artist, um, which, and I, which I'm not saying that the movie was itself creatively a failure. Right. But, I hear you. you know, The Cobbler was critically and commercially the, the one thing you'd ever done. And I think most people that it wasn't um, lauded right, right away. Right. And then you had this incredibly ambitious, difficult, uh, highly rigorous and smart thing you were trying to get off the ground. And I know most of us would have like given up, taken writing jobs, just tried to like find commercial success. And I want to know, like, you know, when I've made films that didn't work or that failed, you know, you're the writer, director, like all falls on you. How did you think about it and how did you steal yourself and like... How did you put this thing on your back again and tell yourself that you could do it? Like, how did you make yourself feel special enough to do this again? <laughs> That's a good way of putting it, actually. Um, we all try to make ourselves feel special. Um, <laughs> Tony Gilroy said that to me once. That I was like, how do you, what do you do? And he goes, I walk around the city until I feel special enough to tell the story. Amazing. 
That man, he has like <laughs> Gilroy has the perfect answer for everything, even if you don't understand it. Which is which? Oh, well, quite often I don't understand it. I just nod like I do. I throw things that he says in life into movies all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. He's, I, I have a character in yeah. in in Billion saying something that Tony once said to me. Yeah, and you still don't understand it. You almost. almost <laughs> you sit in the editing room and you watch it again and again. You get it. But you know he's amazing. Oh, uh, so no, tell me. So uh, well, look. Um, you know, first off, uh, with the cobbler. Uh, uh, yeah, you're right about how it was received. And, um, you know, I think with every film I ever ever have made, I, I feel like I'm just pushing myself and writing what I think is interesting. And inherent in that is a fair amount of risk. I think every movie I've made could could fail, <laughs> right? There's always that, that line. And I think when you look at the storylines and you look at what I'm dealing with, it can go either way. And um, so I think I stopped looking at it that way in terms of victory and failure, even though we kind of live in a society that sort of makes that very... Well, and in a business that's yeah, obsessed. Brutal, over it. brutal. And, and it is, you know, right. As a writer director, I'm kind of on the mound. And if I give up the run, I give up the shelled. run. Yeah. You're sitting out there, right, taking the hits, thinking, why aren't they taking me out of this game? Right. Um, but they, there's no one to really take you out of the game. So, you know, um, you're right. The Cobbler was unique for me in that way. Like, I'd never experienced that. In fact, I experienced it. I was in Toronto prepping Spotlight. I was probably about six weeks out when this was all going down at the Toronto Film Festival. Oh, and, you're in Toronto yeah, yeah, and your yeah. movie is bombing yeah. at Toronto. Yeah, getting killed. Oh. God, the word bombing. Do we have to throw that around so much? It was a disaster. Unbelievable. <laughs> this is a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> no, but the point is you've now made the best movie of the year, so it, and it's being received as such. So I think that's... That's nice. No, but I mean, that's... The, no, no. So it isn't... Look, man, it, it is a mental thing, right? This totally. is... Totally. I'm fascinated by it. I have totally. it my whole life by how somebody who is like a peak performer can get crushed and then process it in a way that's different from the way many other people would... Pro- like, a lot of people would fold up the fucking tent. So what did it feel like? Well, first of all, I didn't really have a choice because I was why? deep in pre... It would have been weird if I left pre-production on Spotlight six weeks yes. out. And they said, why is he going home? Because his feelings are hurt. People didn't like his other movie. That would have been a weird thing. I would have <laughs> explained that to people. Uh, but you do have to sort of wake up in the morning and go to work and know that's out there uh, in the world. So it plays at Toronto to bad press and you have to show up and like see everybody? Well, you know, what's really interesting about that is the Toronto Film Festival didn't want the movie. I, granted, it's a unique movie. And, and I got to say, for the record, I, I love the movie and I stand by the movie. And I think there's a lot there and we can address. Well, how, that's a huge thing, by the way, it if is. You, for you to eat, feel and say sort of like not caring. It is. And it ties into a, the bigger conversation here, which is they, they sort of stuck that movie at the end of the festival. They didn't know what to make of it. And quite honestly, a lot of people didn't. It's not what I usually do. And that was the point of it. Um, and they did a sort of press industry screening at the very beginning of the movie at 8.30 in the morning, and it didn't go so well. At the beginning of the festival. At the beginning of the festival, sorry. And it didn't go so well. And so the press were all over it, but no one had seen the movie. Had you known that, like, um, had you anticipated that or you didn't? Uh, I anticipated they could were be Were there rough. any warning signs? I'm saying, were there warning uh, no, signs No, I had you? no warning signs. We're like just finishing throughout there. So I was sort of that. I remember I was, I think I went for a run and I got back and my phone started lighting up. I was like, ruh row, this isn't good. <laughs> they told and, you. Uh, I mean, people told you right people away. People give me a heads up. And, uh. You know, you kind of have to know the stuff for the sales and the business end of it. And it was all kind of playing out. But we hadn't screened the movie, and we didn't screen for four or five days later at the very end. So by that point, 
Sandler was also up there. Uh, he was working on Pixels, and uh, we were having dinner one night and just kind of talking about it, and we both realized that no one had seen the movie but this room full of critics and how unique that was. And um, uh, as, as you probably know, the press loves to go after Adam. They, they, they just have this thing for him. They, you know, they really go after him, and, and he handles it very well. And also, for the record, he's one of the best guys I've ever worked with. He, I, I'm sure that that's true. I've met him a handful of times, and he's always been just as good a dude as you could hope for he, when uh, I met yeah. him. And, and on, as a professional, he works hard, and he cares, and he means it, and he contributes, and he sets his ego aside, and he's just value-added across the board, and he's just a terrific, terrific man. So we've formed this, and I didn't know Adam at all before this movie. So we you know, are kind of dealing with it. Anyway, three days later, we go to the, the big theater. We were screening, and 1,200 people or whatever. And at this point, I was feeling, as anyone would who had a movie that was sort of they were kind of going after, a little beat up, right, and a little ragged. And I was working around the clock in pre-production and spotlight, and I had to throw in a suit and go to a premiere of this movie. In the middle of, like, prep, and you're walking in the— Everything else. And when you in, in pre-production as a director, you're trying so hard to get everybody on your back yeah. and supporting you. Yeah. And then I'm, I'm sure that after those reviews hit, like, the first day you're walking down that— uh, like in yeah. the middle of all those desks, yeah. and you're trying to tell everyone this one's going to be great. It's hard. You're looking, <laughs> oh, it's tough. It's, it's, it's true. It's, it's all really interesting, right? And it is a dynamic that is it's so human. It's tough to ignore or or even deny because it's all true on some level. But what happened, which was most liberating, is shortly after this happened, in those three or four days between the press and, and the screening, I, I had a strong sense of uh, I don't know, feeling liberated. It's the only word I can come up with. I understand. I was suddenly like, this is it. This, no one's even seen the movie, and this is the extent of it. And and I look, good or bad, I don't read a lot of reviews. I will over time if I'm curious about something or I hear something interesting and everyone around me is reading all of them so I can kind yeah, of— Yeah, you get someone—they yeah, forward I you the thing you have to Look, see, I think yeah. there's some very good critics out there and have some very interesting things to say, and we can learn from analysis of our work. But usually, good or bad, including Spotlight, I don't read a lot of them. So, uh, but I started feeling kind of, I don't know, not, if not liberated, emboldened by this. And I can't quite explain why. I was surprised me. I understand it. And then we got to the screening and I sat in this big theater with uh, 1,200 people. And look, I have sat in a lot of movie theaters around the world with all of my films. And the film played great. Exactly like I wanted to in moments where I'm like, that's this, that's this. You know, as you could just feel a film as a director. And I remember we were all kind of looking around, me and my team, who was a bit shell shocked at this point, because the same team I've made three uh, good films with. And we uh, we kind of went backstage afterwards and then went on stage for Q&A. And it was really fun and lively. And the audience was really um, engaged. And um, I felt, uh, if not validated, I, I, I sort of furthered my sense of either liberation or feeling emboldened by the process and realizing, look, all, all I can do is keep telling stories. Like literally all I can do is go back to work. And sometimes they're going to love you and sometimes they're going to hate you and sometimes it's in between. Um, but there's felt something, I felt sort of a, a rite of passage in some way. And uh, that you'd never been touched by that before. Yeah, yeah. And it was really interesting. And I was like, okay, got this feeling. For the record, it's not all good. <laughs> but uh, you do learn a lot from it. You know, all those cliches about you learn more in failure, I think, um, I think Think, I think are true. I, I will say, even when I have a film that works, um, I'm constantly rethinking it years and years later. I'm constantly thinking, sure, could have done this differently, could have done that differently. But so. it's much better when you know, like I, I, I've told this before, so I'll say it quickly, but when, when Rounders first came out, 
the first two reviews were terrible, and they hit a week before all the others. It was yeah. Time and Newsweek, and they landed a week before everything else for some right? reason. Yeah. And I got these two horrible reviews, and they singled Dave and me out as being the thing that sucked in this movie. <laughs> it was like the writers ripped off all this. And I, I, so I was horrified and devastated in a fetal position. And then I woke up the next – I swear to you, I woke up the next morning, and I was fine. And I felt like, oh, they can't actually touch me. Yeah. Because I knew the movie was, I will say, because I knew that we'd done what we wanted to do. Right. So like, okay. Now I've had, you know, I've written on movies that were not good. And right. that hurts in a different way. Because yeah. you know, oh, I wish I could have done all this. I, I know. And, and you want to be able to get out in front of it and go like, I know. But here with The Cobbler, where you knew you made your movie. Yeah. I guess you were able to say, okay, I still, I'm going to bet on 10 years from now or whatever. I made my own Pretty much, yeah. And I just, I felt, I, and, and it's funny, even now I feel really good about it. And of course, I've, you know, in the early press of Spotlight, uh, which has been very good, and we feel very fortunate for that as a, as a, as a filmmaking team, because it's never just me, it is a team, um, good or bad. Um, you know, we feel happy about that. But yeah, of course, journalists have wanted to talk to me about this very thing. The Cobbler, first time he got really beat up, and now you're coming back strong with Spotlight. And, you know, I guess it's an interesting talking point. And, um, I'm actually up for it as long as we possibly address the bigger picture, too, which is sort of film critics and analysis, which I think we could look at also. What do you mean look at it? Well, I just think what's interesting about it right now is like, look, I just made a movie about journalism. Yes. And I think, as you know, and and I think one of the points is that, uh, you know, since we made this movie, which was set in 2001, the industry has just been completely decimated. Obliterated. Right. So it barely exists in the form that we show it in the movie anymore. And that's a big problem. Uh, Yeah, I think about it all the time. You know, my my son is a great young journalist at the most prestigious college newspaper in the country. And he's like an editor at the paper at a very young. And I look and I'm like. I hope these four years are really fun doing this hobby that barely, like, what do you do with that now? Yeah, Yeah, it's like opera or something. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, like, he's great at it, and he loves it, and I've never even, like, I have no idea how that would, what kind of, what that means, other than if you work at one of two places in the world. Yeah, well, look, I think think to that end, uh, you know, I think there's, you know, we've already, I've already talked to some young college journalists who have seen this movie, and I've done my roundtables, which I love, by the way. I love going to cities like Washington, sit around with a bunch of students but have you done it up there where he is I have no I'm not going up there yet yeah, so we'll make that happen. But I think there's twofold with those guys. Not only do we hope the movie somehow inspires young journalists to do their job and do it well, but we also have to inspire some young person, some innovator who understands both and loves legacy journalism as we know it and new media and, and the Internet who can somehow crack the code of what's the new model. You know, what's the new model for journalism that somehow allows us to have not just strong national presence, but more particularly a really strong local presence in these cities and towns around the country where papers are drying up and disappearing. There's no one to keep watching anything anymore. And we need those newspapers. But you're saying so that that's clearly the case. But but how does that how does that tie into critics having their knives out for you on the other thing. Yeah. So just to put a fine point on that before, and then I'll I'll reach that, is, you know, I think ultimately that's what the film Spotlight's about, right? Because it is. It's a local story that started in Boston and had this sort of global repercussion. So we keep going back to that. So, you know, when I get back to, look, and it's always dangerous, but I think I'm I'm not talking about critics in an emotional way at all. I just, now I've had several conversations with some very good ones around the country about this very thing, which is the industry, as you just said, has been obliterated. Well, of course that affects our 
arts and entertainment. And of yes. course, that affects editors and reporters of arts and entertainment. And what does it do? It really, you know, they, they have to, for one, the response time is you, you, you come out of a screening and people are what? They're, they're tweeting about yeah, it. They're the blogging. Competition to get the Boom, point get it out there. Three points, there three points, three points, three points, three points. Got to get out right away. So there's that. And then it just starts questioning how thoughtful is the analysis anymore? How thoughtful is where they take a break, take a moment, pause, and say, what did he do? What didn't work? What did work? Let's break it down. I feel like in both victory and defeat, everything seems very definitive and at times even one note. And I feel like that's something to look at because, look, there's a lot to learn from a really thoughtful analysis of a film, good or bad. But more often than not, it feels like maybe in the in the bigger picture now, we're losing even that. And uh, I think that's too bad, you know. But, you, but I can't imagine that emotionally you were able to take much sucker from that in the initial moments of the thing. And I guess what I'm, what I'm interested in is, are you the kind of person who can put it, who can absorb it, take it for a day, and then rear view it somehow and move forward? I'm pretty good at that. And is that something you've always, is that something like you've just had, you know, at a young age, uh, you know, <laughs> you, you ask a girl out, it doesn't go well, you can go on to the next, or yes, did you have I to, was very was good it? at that, actually, because I was tiny and I could never get a date, so I, but my, my confidence was high. So I, <laughs> That's what I'm saying, so you could. Yes, I kept walking away being like, you don't know what you're missing out on. <laughs> Apparently, right. they all did know exactly what they were missing exactly. out on, and they right. did not care. It's so funny how many people have sat in the chair across from me, creative artist now, and it like literally does just go back to yeah. the reductive thing of, yeah. I know I was special, the girls didn't, yeah. and I was going to go prove it yeah. to them. Yeah, I think I asked Somehow. like five girls in a day to the prom, and I think the fifth one said yes. Out of, I think I came back to her. I think I circled back. You circled, you doubled back. I think it was out of a, a combination of pity and exhaustion. Even wait, said, that's yeah. even your senior year of high school? I think so. You were still, you were small, senior year? I was tiny. When did you grow? Freshman year of college. Six inches. Wow. Whole new game. That's Michael Jordan level totally. stuff right there. Totally. <laughs> I mean, I Except I went from 5'4 to 6'. Yeah, but still, <laughs> so, still, still your, didn't get me on the court. Changed your life, yeah, though. Yeah, no, my senior high school, my junior year, I wrestled 101. And senior year, I was going to wrestle 108 and ended up, not, ended up not wrestling. I mean, that's the difference between Danny Strong and John Hamp. I mean, right it's there, a right? Big, <laughs> I mean, that's a big six inches. Strong's just sitting there drinking his coffee, <laughs> like, why do they got to drag me in? I this? love Danny. I'm a very and successful you, I, writer. I, he's the most. Who's more? No, yeah. no, who's a better guy? He's been in here. Yep, nice guy. Great uh, writer. Great writer. Great guy. I think I gave him two inches just now. You too. might have. You so, might have. I think I helped and, the and, cause. And, and I didn't let's hurt be honest. The cause. Ham doesn't need any help. He doesn't oh. need your help. It's true. <laughs> Listen, I, I will say I had the line in my head for like 20, <laughs> 10 seconds before I said it, and I, I never did. I weighed it. I actually weighed whether it was fair, and mm. then I was like, "Empire is the biggest show in the history of television." Danny created it. He can take it. Amazing. I decided he could yeah. take it. You know, I always knew that guy had Empire in him. You just look at him, and you just know. Oh no, you just piled yeah. on. Yeah, <laughs> you just totally piled on. I know. That's so You're wrong. Right. You're right. I'm gonna have to call. He's him like now. the nicest person I know in show business, and if. If it changes today, it's because of the two of us. Yeah, yeah, because we could probably affect him. No, it's true. He's on <laughs> from this windowless pod that we're in together. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? He won't. He, let's be honest. He's making empire. He's not listening no, to the he's podcast. Not. He's busy. All right, I have one question for all of the. I'm going to listen to a podcast to help me fall asleep. People, are you struggling to get some shut eye? I hate when I'm struggling to get shut eye. I hate it when I can't fall asleep. Listen, if you answered yes, you're in luck because we have a great tip for how you can zonk out more easily. Mattress Firm, America's neighborhood mattress store, lets your budget stretch further when you're looking for ways to improve your sleep. They are more than mattress experts. They have the whole package 
that helps you transform your mattress into a bed from adjustable bases and sheets to headboards and bedroom decor. They have you covered literally and figuratively go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast to see what deals are happening right now. As I read this sentence to you, they even offer you a 120 night sleep trial to ensure perfection and a 120 night low price guarantee. So you know, you paid the perfect price. Look, I value my sleep because, uh, I, I have limited time. I'm a writer primarily, uh, storyteller. And if I am sleepy, if I haven't gotten enough sleep, I find it really hard to stay focused and concentrate. But when I have a good night's sleep, it becomes much, much easier. Again, go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast to learn how your sleeping could be monumentally improved. In, in high school, were you acting? No, not at all. I played sports. What was the, you wrestled one, at one-on-one. I wrestled? And a win-win I left out before, which is... Win-win. A lot of people think, you know, that until Spotlight, that's a lot of people's favorite movie of yours. Yeah, it's funny. It's interesting with, you know, when you start to have a few movies under your belt, like what people pick up on and people are like, have a very definite idea. And it's from, it's like, it's almost, I can't tell which one wins out from hearing back from people. It's oh, really, really interesting, yeah. Station Agent isn't like the thing that people... They kind of have remember, a special relationship with. They do. And then win-win and visitor is very divided depending on how you like your movies, you know. Right. Um, and I think um, it's really interesting to hear back. No, I mean, listen, I'm, you're one of the few filmmakers I've seen. I've seen all your movies, I think. Hmm. Well, it's only five. That's a lot. That is. I appreciate it. I mean, it's a lot to to see. Yeah. I've watched a few of them more than once. A station agent. I remember going to see Station Agent. And it was one of those movies that left me walking around the city in that incredible, bittersweet, joyous haze where you're like, the world shifted. You know, oh, someone found a way to tell this very particular personal story and um, made it something that I really cared about. And I really still feel like I know those characters somehow. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Your first film is always, I think it's always a special thing. And when it connects with audiences and especially because a lot of the people involved, Peter Dinklage and Bobby Cannavale and Patty Clarkson, they were all just good friends of mine. Uh, so it definitely had a, has a special place in my heart. So I, I want to go back a little bit because I, I, I don't know that you've done a ton of this stuff with, with people. I don't know that people have a great context for how this can, they sort of know the story a little bit. Oh, you were an actor who decided to write this movie and found mm-hmm. a way to get it made. But like, what was your path? Did you grow up around people who were artists? Was being an artist something that everybody thought about? There were a lot of kids in your neighborhood that that's what they were going to go do? No, no. Where'd you grow up? New Providence, New Jersey. It's actually where Win Win is set. Yeah. Um, and uh, no, uh, I'm, there was a theater in the school, in the high school. Uh, I didn't have anything to do with it. Uh, you know, I played sports and uh, wrestling and what else? Wrestling, soccer, and tennis. Or yeah. my sports, and uh, you know, I come from a family of brothers and one sister, five kids, uh, and and uh, you know, pretty normal upbringing uh, in a lovely little town. Lovely. What'd your What'd your dad do for a living? He was a he was a in textiles. When he retired, he was a CEO of a, of a company called uh, Fieldcrest Cannon, which did towels and sheets and things. So he was a business. He was a business person, full on business, as is pretty much everyone else in my family right now. Right. And yep. so did you, did some part of you know, like, oh, I'm, I'm interested in the arts in a different way? Like, how did it dawn No, for not you? really. You know, the one thing I did is I had a passion for Broadway growing up. Like, I love seeing musicals and, and, and mostly musicals because plays hadn't even reached me really? yet. Really? Yeah. You mean you didn't know there was such a thing as like a serious? I, yeah, I think we were just, I think my family, when we would go in, we would go in mostly to see musicals and I just kind of got hooked on them and loved them. And I remember being like 13 and like begging my father to see uh, Evita with Patti Lapone and Mandy Patinkin. Great commercial. 
I, I, I beg too. We're I mean, the same. I mean, how could you not? I beg to see Mandy that. Mandy uh, looks so yeah, bad. You were supposed right. to be immortal when she would sing. When he would sing that line in the right. commercial, you like had to go. Great commercial. So yeah. I went for my birthday, and so and I would go year after year after year and see whatever you know. Was, you mean for your birthday, you would say, "Take me to see a play." Yeah, yeah. But the funny thing was, I would have it's amazing night. I'd come home, I'd think about it. I remember sitting in my bed, looking at playbills, and just reading all the bios and being like, "Who are these really weird people, and how do they do this?" And then I would close it, put it in a drawer, and never think about it again. I wouldn't even go into school the next day and talk about it. Wow. It yeah. was your private, special it was it. thing. I loved it. It was so great. And Would then, you take a friend with you? No. If, I, if anyone went with me, it was a sibling. And your th- parents, a sibling, and you yeah. go to the theater in New York. Yeah. You would obsess over the book for a night, mm-hmm. read it really closely, mm-hmm. shut it, and be done. Mm-hmm. Awesome. I do remember when my dad took me to Evita, a very funny thing. It was just the three of us. And we got into the doorway of the, of the of theater. Uh, I forget what theater was. I should really find that out. And uh, and this and this gentleman approaches. He was like a, a, a chauffeur-looking gentleman with an accent. And he said, my boss is in that car out there. And there's a very fancy black limousine. He said, we would like to pay you whatever you want for your tickets because he's in town and he's, we need three tickets. And my dad's like, uh, well, the tickets, uh, you know, it's my, uh, you know, and he's like, he'll pay you whatever you want. I remember my dad looking at me. I was just old enough to be like, don't do it, man. It's me. It's your, my birthday. And, uh, and I, I think, you know, I could see my mother looking at my father like, don't do it, man. You can't don't do, do it. He'll never forgive you. And he finally was like, I could regretfully, like, you know, I don't think we can do it. Thinking probably he could have made some coin. What a scene. Had the guy over a barrel, right? So uh, It could be that they were worried about you and they wanted to see how much this meant to you. And abs- they set the whole thing up. Absolutely. And you I, know. You, I think you could see the desperation in my eyes. I needed this night. It got me through the rest of the school year. Why? Uh, no, I just, I yeah. just loved it. And then, we, and then we went and saw it. And it was a truly great performance. And then it's interesting, when I went back, right before I directed a station agent, the, the, I went back to, I, I did my first play on Broadway as an actor, and it was uh, Noises Off. And in the play, I, my love interest was Patti LuPone. Wow. The, the, now, at that point, was sort of the- She older, was an older woman. Yeah, who I was uh, ha- supposed were... to be having an affair with. And did you tell her the story? I told her, of course. She was horrified that I, I was, was going to say, did you tell her yeah, early yeah, on? I told her early, yeah, no. She's like, oh, God, I feel so old. Stop it. I don't want to hear that. It's very funny. And, and um, so, but, so you're going to these plays, but you're not thinking about it as no, a career. No, never. Never. Not a career in your mind. Never. It didn't Secret exist. career to you or no? No. I, from, you know, look, at that age, it just doesn't exist. You know, it either exists or it doesn't. And I think at that point, I wasn't maybe the most curious kid. I, I was, Were you a good student? I was a good student, yeah. And... Um, I was into it, but I was a little bored in high school. My mother said to me recently, she actually told my wife this, she goes, Tommy was the one kid we should have sent to private school. Like, he just got bored, and he started to check out, and he didn't try as hard. And I think that's probably true. I think I got a little bored, and, and my, my sort of uh, focus was all over the place. Were you writing short stories? Nothing. Did like you know that. you were a writer? Nothing creative. Was there any sort of objective evidence that someone could have looked at and said, oh, Tommy has an inability for this stuff. Tommy. Did your Boston just come out, buddy? I just felt like doing nice. it. Yeah. Um, no. I don't know. You'd have to ask my folks. Uh, but I, not I, that you knew. Not, not that, that anyone said. No, 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 no. I mean, no. Nope. The closest I came is we had to do a special French project. From I was in advanced French. I loved French. And I was in, had to take out a special project, and all these people were writing these things. And, and I set up a French cafe in my basement and invited my entire class. And I remember my parents being like, what are you doing? Hey, that's that's <laughs> so, something, but it's not so, this. No. So, so no, then that's go, about as close as I got. You go off to, to college. Mm-hmm. Thinking you're going to study what? I went as a in. I went to study. Uh, I went to the business school because everyone else in my family did. And I just and where'd you go? Uh, Boston College. Right. 
um, which factors into Spotlight. <laughs> and yeah. uh, I went uh, studied business uh, for about a year and a half. Uh, tried hard, uh, had a professor who was actually my older brother's professor who went there too. And he called me in after class one day and said, uh, how you doing? I said, great. I'm working hard. How am I, how do you think I'm doing? He was not so good. I don't, I don't think you should be in this school. Really? Yeah. Very nicely. And what was his reason? His reason was he thought I was a smart kid who was applying myself, uh, but not having much success. And it was because I didn't really have a connection to what I was studying. What did that feel like? I, I'm going to use the word liberating for the second time in this no, podcast. I get it. I suddenly was like looking at this guy and he so caught me by surprise because he was kind of kicking me out of the school and I not really didn't have that authority, but I just thought, wow, he's absolutely right. I really don't care about this. And I changed majors that day. To what? Philosophy. I mean, that does tell you something about how you process things, that both things felt liberating to you. In yeah. other words, that... I could have taken it as <laughs> a lot of people because a lot of people get laid low, right? Yeah, yeah. They get yeah. because they they start to believe that there's some legitimate judgment being right. rendered on them. You didn't. You were like, oh, that path is not one I the you know, you're like, oh, right. that's not that yeah. pathway's closed. Ah, that's great. It right. means there's all these other Exactly. You just had that? I did. I remember I was really excited because I had at that point taken a couple of philosophy classes and I thought they were fascinating. And I was like, this is great. The only thing I had to do was call my father and say, hey, I'm changing. And that to me, I thought was going to be a big deal. And what happened? He was like, great. I mean, there was no drama at all. He was just like, oh, you need to learn to read and write and you need to you know, study what you want. And I thought, wow, that was really easy. And still no acting. No. And so you switch philosophy, you, you start, you dig Started it. doing that, and then uh, the day it had, two things happened. One, I was dating a girl who was fewer years older than me, a young woman who was fewer years older than me, and she one time said to me out of the blue, have you ever done theater? And no. I said, uh, no, I haven't. It, like, didn't even dawn on me. I was like, why well, should bring this up? Should you should try it. Just try it. You should go to the because you were a storyteller. Yeah, I could picture why because you're a really good storyteller. And also, and she all that was stuff. older and more mature anyway, and probably be, you know by girl years, probably infinitely you know twenty years more mature than I was at that point, and probably just could see you know, my interests. And were you going to a lot of movies? Uh, Did they mean anything to you? Like, what would have been I, your favorite movies then? I love them, but very popular mainstream. No, like, I was yeah, by like, no means uh, like a fan of cinema. Like, like yes, did Star Wars blow my mind? Yes, Star Wars blew my mind. Like, I remember thinking, like, wow. Right, when you were in, whatever, fifth grade or something. Yes, yes, yes. And I remember I also had a job, a high school job, where this guy who was kind of a, kind of a, he was in a band and stuff, and he would sometimes show me weird movies that I thought were weird at the time that I was like, that's pretty, like, he showed me hair. And Maud, and I remember thinking, "Wow, that's kind of amazing." Right, you got that. Yeah, I got it, but not as much as I get it now. I just remember it kind of blew my mind, and like I've never you were seen like, She's any a, that's the most incredible thing relationship I've ever, I've ever seen, and I didn't know that could ever be done, and those stories could make me feel that way. So I had like some people working in my life, kind of well, on someone the, yeah, showing you how Ashby film is a big deal. I mean, right. that's a big deal yeah. when you're he showed 14. me that and Repo Man. Yeah, oh, I, yes. That's, Those are the two that movies. That blew my mind then, too. I totally, yeah, I always saw the big popular movies also, and I forget that somebody showed me Repo Man, right? too, around that. Remember how cool just, Repo Man was when it came out? It was yeah, really trunk, cool. Yeah, I couldn't believe, yes. So cool. I, it blew my mind. So, you, you but you still, the woman's like, hey, have you thought about doing this? And I, I thought, no, and then she pushed me on it, and I, I, I don't remember the exact details, but basically I went and I, I went to the theater to audition. They were holding open auditions. She let me know. She's like, go and audition. So I showed up. I got in this line line of people. The line led through this room where you sign up right to the stage. It was classic, like the two guys in the audience saying next and you walk on stage. But everyone was walking on stage. This might speak a bit to my development or lack thereof. And they just started talking, doing monologues. I didn't know what the hell a monologue was. So I sat there watching like, what is that? 
person saying? How do they know that? That's too good. And uh, and I got closer and closer to the front of the line, and I just walked out. I was like, I right. can't do this. You didn't have something prepared. No. And, and I was terrified, do. and I left. So that was my first And that up. was like sophomore year or That something. was. And then shortly thereafter, uh, another friend recommended that I try out for this comedy improv group called uh, uh, Every Mother, no, called My Mother's Fleet. When you walked out, like the next day, did you think about it at Never all? Never talked think, about it. You didn't? You just didn't, didn't tell anyone. Just Roommates, nothing. It was like the play- playbill in the drawer. Oh, it never oh, happened. Fantastic. Yeah, I just shut it and thought, okay, that was a disaster. I'm never going back there. But then probably a month or two later, someone mentioned this improv comedy group, and I showed up for that audition. I don't know why, uh, but it was a totally different vibe. It was like playing. It was like in a room. They were all kind of interesting and you people. You knew you were quick and funny. and you Yeah, and like... I figured I could play that game, and it and I was accepted to that group, and it was a big group on Boston College. Uh, Amy Poehler was one of their alumni, too, a few years after me. We never worked together. And um, and they're just a big hit on Boston College, and and then and that was kind of the beginning of it. Then I kind of got the bug, and then you start doing it. And does it occur to you, oh, I can do this for my life? No, that didn't occur till uh, after college. So I know you were at Yale Drama with um, friends of ours. With mm-hmm. uh, Giamatti was was there with mm-hmm. you, and Andy, who you work with, was mm-hmm. there with you. Um, did did you go straight? Uh, did I go straight? Did you go straight from college? No, no. I, after college, uh, I ended up moving to Minneapolis with members of that group that I mentioned. So you were taking that really seriously. You were doing it. Yeah, yeah. You guys were, were going to go be an improv yeah, troupe moved, and open a theater. We moved to Minneapolis, all lived in a house together, wrote and performed comedy for about two and a half years. And we did it. We made a living. We performed everywhere. Now, how was that phone call home? That didn't go so well. That was There was more drama that, with that, that phone was, call. That home. was not so great. That one, I actually drove down to New York and had a business lunch with my dinner. My dad at a place on 41st and 8th in like a, mar- a classic martini like kind of place. Like or something. Oh, it was like so a place like, wa- like one of those places. I, I got to find it totally. And, we, and, and I remember telling him this. And he looked at me at that point. Like I, I came to tell him I had a crack habit and I needed money because he just couldn't get his <laughs> He couldn't understand it. it. No. And then he, he said, okay, we'll come up and see you. At that summer, we performed on Cape Cod and this group. And he came up and my mom and I with my mother and they sat and they watched us perform in a bar where mid-act, mid a drunk got up on stage and we had to form <laughs> oh no! You have to do improv with Remove the, the guy in the middle of it. Remove and, the and guy. And this is your your parents who'd put five kids through Sitting like there just college thinking, oh, had to come up. We and watch never you do should this. have taken them to Evita in thirteen. We right. should have sold no, the movies, sold to the, the tickets to the Venezuelan chauffeur. If you had sold the tickets, and everything would have been fine. Yeah. yeah. So they they were not um, uh, overly supportive at the time, but you. Over time, uh, they knew they started to realize I was serious about it, and uh, and look, I you know it was a crazy time for me too. I was in Minneapolis, I was letting loose a little bit. I was trying to figure it out. I was writing a lot of comedy. I was you know probably living a little too hard, having a little bit too fun. Yeah, I was a young guy. And what, what years is this? Do you think that was uh, ninety? Uh, probably like eighty nine, ninety, ninety one. Replacements. I mean, that was a big scene yeah. in Minneapolis. Yeah, then, Soul right? Asylum was really hot then. Uh, it yeah. was a great time to be in that. Yeah, place. Dave Perner actually lived right next door to me. Really? Yeah, with Mark Perlman of the Blue J- of the uh, what was it? Was it Blue Jays? Was that that game? The J- Jay Jayhawks? Jayhawks. Oh, they're a great band. Great band, oh, right? Mark J- Perlman lived. Oh, with, yeah. they're a great band. So you had the Jayhawks and Soul Asylum. Yeah, those guys lived shared a house. Not the whole band, but I know Perlman no, and he and, and that other the other guys. The there are those two songwriters, the yeah. Jayhawks. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were right there. You were in that scene. You were living hard, having yeah. fun, having a you know relatively for a twenty-one or twenty-two year old, having a good time. But, and did the idea of becoming a storyteller surface at that time, or you were just like having fun performing? 
I was taking it seriously, and I was doing it to the point where I finally auditioned for my first play there at the Guthrie Theater in a tiny bit part. I had a walk on. Like, you got the part. part. I got it with one line. But you got it. I did get it. It felt pretty good. And that's such a beautiful professional theater. The, the, the director at the time was this young new guy out of Seattle called Doug Hughes, which if you know theater at all, he's one of the bigger Broadway directors out there and a, a lovely man, a super talented guy. We've since reconnected. And he was sort of the hotshot young guy coming into the Guthrie and directed the front page, MacArthur Act. Spotlight. It's all coming back to Spotlight, which is a great newspaper. I acted in. I played Hilly Johnson right? once in yeah, uh, yeah. in the front page. Yeah, I had I had two lines. I was a cop, so you you did well, better I was than at me. Sleep, I was at camp when yes. I did it, so it doesn't really it doesn't really count. What camp? Some camp in New Hampshire, and it was great because like nobody knew me the whole summer. I was like I wasn't popular at this camp. Didn't have a lot of friends there this one summer, and then I acted in this play. The thing like I acted in the play. And then afterwards, like, all these people came up to me and they were like, whoa, you can do something. And it was like a great... <laughs> That's like, cool, right? It was a great, really amazing yeah. moment because I made them laugh. I was able yep. to, like, the play's funny. Really I, funny. I was able to make them laugh and they saw me for this brief moment. I mean, it goes away, sadly. Yeah. I mean, three days later, the fact that I couldn't run the 100 yard dash was a problem again. <laughs> <laughs> but for the, for the period of time... Between. Yeah, I know that, man. I know that. You know, you became successful as an actor, a real working actor, before you became a writer-director. Yes, yes. And I, I want to understand how that happened. So from the one play, did you start getting I places? I started doing that. You up deciding to go then, to Yale Drama? And then I moved to Chicago. I got tired of the group. We were just like, the band had to break up. We were all driving each other crazy. You can only do comedy together for so many years. And I moved to Chicago, and I started doing just plays on my own there. And then I really started to dig it. And But I realized I didn't know anything. You know, I'd be you like, didn't have a craft? No, at all. At all. So and I would be at a, like a table read with these real, and Chicago is such a great theater town, and there's so many great actors there. I mean, just a super town. If you're a young actor, I say go there if you want to do theater because you can survive, and, and there's just great theater. And, and we'd sit around doing these table reads, and I just realized the way everyone was talking about the process, I had no idea what they were talking about. And, and I, particularly, I had, the, I had the lead role in this one play. It was a really interesting adaptation of Dalton Trumbo's Coming Back. And I and had the, I was playing the young man in it, and I um I didn't know what, I really remember sitting there jotting I would have jot down things where people were like should I take a beat here and I'd be like what is a beat <laughs> serious you know does he actually take the beats like I didn't know anything so and I thought okay I you know in my simple man mentality which more often not is the case I thought me go learn me apply to Yale. Right. <laughs> me go Yale, good, and learn, beat. So that's kind of what drove me to Yale, really, just like doing a couple plays and realizing, I need a craft here. It's interesting. In so fact, can... like you said that so quickly, you didn't have a craft. At the time, I didn't have the language to know I was missing a craft. You know, oh, you I mean? just like I'm missing like um, information, information about what this stuff means. I don't want to seem like an idiot. Exactly. I don't want to be an idiot. Yeah. I don't want to be the guy jotting down things and looking right. it up. There, you didn't on. realize there was actually an approach, an attack, a choice of, of many different approaches yes. and attacks yep. that you, you one could take to do this thing. Yeah. And I think you're around. I remember that watching Doug Hughes direct the front page, just thinking, man, this man is wonderfully intelligent, incredibly articulate. And he talks about process in a way that makes it incredible, makes it very uh, accessible and doable, active. And I thought, what a, what a wonderful, what a wonderful wonderful talent to have. So I think a couple of these experiences Started adding up. drove me back to Yale, yeah. And were you thinking, because so many people get caught up, especially now, like in their early 20s, mid-20s, in this idea of success? Mm -hmm. Like people want it, right? They always ask you, how do you get an agent, right? Isn't that like people, you yeah. do a speech, don't people, yep. inevitably. Were you, because you're, you know, as a, as a guy now, you are, you're very like mission focused and you're successful and you've been successful for a long time. Were you thinking about that stuff then? No. Were you like, how do I book? No. You weren't, no. right? 
You were just kind of thinking about diving into something that turned you on. Totally. And it was the one thing that really turned me on. You were, were you a big reader then? Fairly big reader, you read, yeah. I mean, yeah, I do. So you were reading for yeah, fun, but yeah. you thought of it more that way, yeah. right? Yeah, but I had never thought. I just uh, A career in the arts didn't occur to me. I, look, by the time I got to Yale, it started to occur well, to me because sure, it then. felt valid, even though it was still, looking back, such an early point in our process, right? But it felt valid, and it, it certainly felt valid to my parents where they thought, well, he's at a good school again. How wrong can he go? Well, no, that's a bit – listen, you know, I think most um, sort of formalized teaching of the arts – I think is lame. Mm -hmm. I don't think most of it is really useful because most of the time the teachers aren't of the haven't become the kind of artists they right. should be to teach. Right. But Yale is one of those places where they are and it is. Right. So yeah. it, it is an actual like when you say it's you did distinguish yourself enough to get to be at the place one of the places that that if you have the inner stuff to do it they're going to give you the, help you help, find right. the tools. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it was a great place to go to school. And you were with a bunch of people who ended up being notable, in right, this, right? Right. Yeah. Within your within yeah, they, your yeah. world. Yeah, it's a pretty small collective there, and and they were and they you know they attract some good kids. And did you know then that you? I'm trying. When when did it occur to you as this? So you're acting and you're getting work and you're working at, at Yale. When did it start to occur to you that you wanted to be the person? telling the yeah, well, stories. Yeah, keep in mind, so I came from this kind of comedy improv background, right? So yes. we were always writing and writing sketches and performing and even directing them. They were all the same thing for me. Like, there, uh -huh. I didn't come from formal theater background where you're an actor or a director or a designer. Right, if you guys wanted to be funny, you had to create a thing you, to be funny. You had to write it, and sometimes you'd be like, you direct this one because we're in it, or you wrote it, and you're in it. And, you know, so it, it all seemed like it was uh, part and parcel, right? And and so when I got to Yale, and I started, it was a little more structured, and, you know, I was learning, and I, you just felt like you kind of, you know, you get beat up because the training is so difficult, and it's so foreign to anything I had done, you know, and you're, you're working on check and Shakespeare and these amazing masterworks that make you feel so, as a young actor, so useless, you know, and, and, and it's very challenging and draining in a really exciting and fun way. But simultaneous to that, they have the Yale Cabaret. And suddenly someone said to me, you know, if you want to put something up in that, you should. And I huh. thought, oh, this is, so I started doing that. And, and I, and I co-wrote and directed a play about Napoleon uh, with a friend of mine that was very physical comedy, kind of funny three person about. Napoleon, one of his field marshals, and this woman, and I and I ended up directing it, and um, it was just incredibly exciting. And I remember thinking, oh, I don't have to be out there doing it. I get so much from co-writing, and I might even co-direct it. I can't remember, but I had so much fun in the collaboration, and then watching it, sitting in an audience, and watching it work and feeling it. You mean that got you high, even same as high. much as the same, same high. high, same high. And I was like, oh, this is really exciting. Yeah, because it gives you a measure of you can actually control. Yeah. Like you actually have a measure of being able to determine your own fate. Then. Yeah, yeah. It was just a totally new. Again, it was a completely new experience. And so I, you know, that the the cabaret was the turning point. So, you know, when I got out of Yale, I just started like any young actor, just, just trying to get a job because it's so damn hard. And I started doing regional theater and then some theater in New York, and then got a couple of TV movies, things to pay off my tuition. And, yeah, and was working more or less pretty steadily um, when uh, I started to write the station agent. 
And so at that time, when you came to New York, you thought to yourself, I'm going to do this acting thing and then I'm going to, I'm going to start directing. No. Nah, yeah. What, what I did was I was always writing. So when I got ah, out of this Yale, is important. Yeah, when I got out of Yale, I just started writing. So at first I was writing like a, I was writing a series of, I was almost writing like a one person play. I don't know what it was. I still have it, but it was all these different characters dealing with fear in their lives. And it was all these different scenarios that I was seeing in the world. And I, I had some weird night job at a financial institution where I'd sit in a room and watch all their deals get backed up. And if if, if the red light went off, I had to call someone. That was my whole job. Really? So, it's so weird, yeah. The, bearing security, they since went under. Big bank that collapsed. I, I, I wonder why. Great story, right? Um, so I would sit in this place and write, and I would write you know, for four or five hours a night. And you liked writing? Loved writing. Did you worry about whether you were good at it? Like when you're writing a Didn't first draft, it. do you worry about it when you're writing a first draft? No, or you don't? No, not really. You just step up there and do the I thing. I just do it, yeah. I mean, you figure it'll get better. And at that point, I really didn't know. Right. You know, I didn't know if I was good or bad. I didn't really think about and it. And you didn't much. think about how you were going to, so when you started turning that thing and then, then you started writing the station agent, did you think to yourself, oh, I have to write something small enough that I could raise the money and go make yeah, it? Yeah, I was smart enough to do that. And I think at that time, I had, then it was, it was about my mid 20s and I started to fall in love with cinema. <laughs> That's when. So and living so it in New was York. right around then, and I started going downtown and seeing movies, and 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 I just started like I, I started appreciating it almost academically in a different way, where I started thinking of it not just as movies but as cinema, and like what does that mean, and sort of reading more about it and seeing more movies and being more and more influenced, and and kind of digging deeper into what I thought I could do. And who were the direct like who were the writer directors it was, it was who all, hit you? Then? It was all over the place because I would go to film form a lot and see whoever, and I remember I was you know at that point really in. Like French New Wave, big surprise, right? Like so, so just cool and edgy and romantic stuff, and new, yeah. and and was super dinging it. And then you know, every now and again, like I mean, like I, Melville, Truffaut, everyone, Godard, yeah, all that yeah, stuff. probably probably less Melville, who I got into later, and I feel like he's a little bit more classic in his in his work to some degree. Yeah, but like my, when I started watching those movies, he was my favorite. Yeah, he's amazing. I mean, amazing. And um, but uh, you know, I just started started watching everything that would come through town, and just I had more time on my hands. So I started seeing movies and thinking about it, and and thinking what I would do and how I would approach it. And and then I thought, well, if I'm thinking, getting so into movies, why don't I put this play aside and write a small movie? Uh, right. So you were thinking about, at that time, camera, performance as an actor. Like yeah. you, were, you were then, for the first time, actually being analytical, like loving it, but being analytical also. Yeah, which I feel like for most, for most people I know uh, who know way more about movies than I do, uh, as we know, there's different types in our, in our business, you know, yeah. uh, I feel like they knew when they were 14, 13, 12, and that, you know, the Super 8, and worked at a video store at 8, you know, and that wasn't me. I had all kinds of different interests. So I came to it like most things in my life late. Right. Later. It was the same. You grew the six inches yeah. at a different time. <laughs> totally. I, th- at that point, I grew six more inches. Right. Yeah, then you became such a six. <laughs> incredible. Six. That's why I'm now eight two. Have you it's mentioned that to fantastic. people? No, I was going to leave that at the end. For no the one ever talks about it. <laughs> You're that guy in the Guinness Book of World Record picture with the glasses when we were kids. That's a guy whose name I should really know. You know what? We that's a name. You know that really the tall guy with the glasses yeah, yeah. who's eight feet. Yeah, and that's a name I should walk around with. I'm mortified yeah. that I don't know his name. Does Jason know it? Nah, it doesn't count if you. I can't internet it. I'm not going to pretend to. Uh, Can you consider him like a your store of knowledge? Okay. I don't have. All right. I don't have it. He doesn't even care. He's not even looking it up. We'll put him in the show notes. Right. The big tall guy with the yeah. It was the Guinness Book of Records when we were kids. It was a big deal because they had these uh, the fattest twins on a mini bikes. And then, do you remember the fattest twins of in course, mini bikes? Yes. You do, right? Yeah. The huge twins on the so mini bikes. I was so into that stuff. Me too. It was no. the coolest stuff ever. <laughs> These huge twins on the mini bikes. Great Which, picture. by the way, means nothing. 
course but it at doesn't. that point you're like good it was, whoa look at and that. as a young man i remember thinking good for them yeah they've made something of their They're lives in the yeah. so what, you're yeah. watching the movies Started getting into it, and then and then literally, I'd love to say there was more magic and excitement about it, but I just started writing the station agent, and I think at that did point, you write it for Dinklage? Did you know? No, no. I, I think I wrote it for Ethan Hawke. I don't know if I've ever told Ethan this. Uh, I sort of knew him a little bit. I met him a few times in New York at that time. I just thought he was a great actor and a super cool guy, and and uh, I, he I had him in mind as a sort of loner outsider. But I think there's some similarities between Dink and Ethan Hawke. I want you to think about that. I'm gonna. I'm not. I'm not even yeah. arguing. Yeah. I'm just, sure that there and are. And don't answer right away. Just think about it. Come back to it. I don't know that. I, I wonder if back then you would have. If I would have told you in 20 years, Dinklage would be the way bigger star. If you would have. I mean, than every, than everybody. I think if you would have known Dinklage was going to be the way sort of bigger person in show business, I would have bought stock. In yeah. Ethan, or I'm saying, would you have known? In Dink, no. no you Who knew? Have... Although I will say, you know, part I mean, of... you did... I mean, you put Dink, Dink but, but here, on the I have to add, But I met Dink because when I was... Uh, when I, I wrote my first play with this guy at Yale about Napoleon, and then I wrote another play as we were leaving about P.T. Barnum and his House of Wonders, and I, we came down to New York to do it in this tiny theater called the Access Theater, uh, which is still there, uh, down in Chinatown area, like third floor walk-up kind of black box theater, and I put on this play, and I needed a Tom Thumb. And I started asking around town. I'm like, who would play? And they're like, everyone's like, Peter Dinklage, Peter Dink, Dink, Dink. And I'm like, all right. And I went and saw him in a play. He was doing a play in um, Playwrights Row there. And he was really good. And we met. And I cast him. And he was just amazing. It's this sort of really maniacal Tom Thumb. And I remember watching him. Every night was a different performance, which in the theater can be good or bad. But he was just a fearless, super compelling actor. I mean, he is. Still is. But but even then he was. And so you knew he was great. I knew from that moment he was a leading man uh, on stage because he just had the voice and the look and the confidence. You know, leading man is all about something other than looks and anything. It's about a confidence. You know, now it's more often not confused with like leading man looks. And as we all know, that's not it. No, but I mean, it's confused by that. You're saying by the industry sometimes. Yeah, yeah. But so. that's not who ends up becoming the successful no, leading Not the man. really great leading mans that we love, you know. So Pete had this thing and then and uh, years later, when I was writing a station agent, uh, um, I had this idea of character. I, was, I had the kind of depot and the town and the area in my head. And I was putting the story together, and I literally ran into him right down around 8th and 16th Street. He was coming back from a job. He was temping at the time, which just always – I love the idea of Pete temping for some reason. And um, we had this long conversation. I was walking away from him, and I thought, oh, man, he would be really interesting in this role. Huh. Did I called finished the script. I didn't. I called him the next day and I said, "Hey, man, I'm thinking about doing this." And he was very not dismissive, but you feel like he had had those offers before. Oh, without them really following me, and he was like, yeah. "Great, let me know when you got the script." And I was like, "Come on, be more excited about it." But that's not his way. And uh, and I finished the script and I sent it to him. And um, like three years later, we made the movie. Why did it take so long? I mean, you read that script. I was a first-time writer-director. You read that script. It doesn't scream box office, right? And and I think people just didn't get it. And I think really what they didn't get is the humor in the movie. I think they thought it was going to be a, a sad movie, just sad movie and a slow movie. Um, but you know, I, in New York, I think everybody's seen that movie. But I wonder if people watching, listening to this, hmm. they you know they may be interested in you because Spotlight's this sort of big deal now yeah. and they you know it's worth finding that movie for people to, to see I think it's on Netflix but I don't even know that I'm sure it's on one of those things either Netflix or be. I love when people find movies later on and I think it's the great thing about movies you know and it happens to me all the time where they've seen two or more movies and haven't seen that or haven't seen Win Win or haven't seen whatever but um, were you were you able to talk to actors because you were an actor easily sort of from the beginning I think I helped I think that helped 
I think also when I was at Yale as an acting student, I watched a lot of very good directors talk to actors and talk about acting. And there was a couple in particular. James Bundy, who now runs the Yale Drama School, I thought was a great example of a hyper-articulate director who like was incredibly accessible. But, but just to bring us back to, to Spotlight, because if I think about Station Agent, you were working with important local actors, but not, you know, Patricia Clarkson and, and Bobby. I mean, you put Bobby on the map with that. With that movie, and then I mean, Patricia Clarkson had done a whole bunch of good, yeah. important work before that. Yeah, and then Richard Jenkins—he uh, was known to movie people, but not famous until yeah. The Visitor. That's what yeah. made him famous. Yeah. Um, and when when you're directing your good old friend, uh, who's the movie star in that movie, Paul Giamatti, right? Um, in Spotlight, you have just a hitter's row yeah. of movie stars, yeah, and TV stars, yeah, and. It's entirely different. It's executed on a scale that's different than anything else that you've done. It's still a small movie relative to Avatar. Right. But you have, you know, Michael Keaton and Liev Schreiber and Mark Ruffalo and Rachel McAdams. And each one of these people is giving a singular performance. I mean, and yet it has a unity. Right. And how did you think about that? You know, did you intentionally cast movie stars? Was there a reason? Slattery? Was there a reason that you you cast sort of people who were instantly recognizable and had a, a, a clear public persona? No, I felt like this was a movie for some reason that could hold that, especially as we started to assemble the cast. And um, there was something about these journalists. They were our heroes, but they were completely anonymous. And there was something about that I'd never told a, at this point as a writer director, never told a, a story based on actual events. So I, I felt sort of freed up by that in a cool way. And look, some of it's money. This movie costs more money than my other movies, maybe combined, almost. And um, and that's not still not a lot of money, as you well know. But um, at a certain point, you need to kind of you need to provide actors that mean something. In this case, it just happened to be one of those great instances where you know the first actor I went out to, Mark Ruffalo. It was just the, not only a movie star now, but just a great actor and was the most right person for this role, He's, hands down. I mean, I'll say the movie is, the acting in this movie is incredibly, yeah, just so incredibly great. great. Every single one of them. I mean, yeah. whether it's Tucci in a, a small but yeah. important role, who's incredible, or, you know, Billy Crudup, Crudup. in, I think, for me, almost famous in this are the two dis- Billy Crudup performances that are unlike any others. You really... And Jesus is Sunday's pretty great, but you really got something yeah. different and out of, out of all, all those guys. And I, and I agree, but we just we started putting the cast together, and it was like a lot of these people are people I've are colleagues that I just haven't worked with, but I've known. You know, uh, John Slattery, uh, Mark Ruffalo, Liev Schreiber, Stanley Tucci. These are people I just sent emails to with a script and said, "Hey, I got the script. What do you think?" And then I sent to their agent to be the to do by proper protocol. But I went right directly to them. I've known them for a long time, and then there were some that I've known of but haven't known personally like Michael Keaton and Rachel McAdams. And, you know, Rachel was the one I had to pause on because I knew her as this kind of big movie star of a certain type of movie and I hadn't seen her do something like this. And, man, what a delight she was to work with. And she totally jumped in and played her role. And, and not like a movie star at all. No. There are these small moments of yeah. her interviewing somebody in a coffee yeah. shop yeah. where you're just... You forget. Uh, she breaks your heart. Yeah. The specificity of her at home, her home life. Yeah. And her, her willing... There's no vanity. I would say... You know, Tucci's character has vanity, has a certain kind of yeah. uh, vanity. Yeah. And Crudup's character has a certain kind of vanity. But the performances are without vanity. And I, I think about what Liev did 
and somehow yeah. it's the almost the opposite. You know, it's great because the power of what he brings, the iconography from the theater stuff and Ray Donovan, it makes you know this is a formidable person. And then right. the choices you guys made, the way he carries himself. It's all just on the inside. Yeah, yeah. That's strange. Now, Liev's a tremendous actor, and it, it, it's so restrained in this film that it yeah. channels his strength and his energy in a really specific way. In a completely way. different way. But I have to say, a lot of that, I think, you know, look, I think in terms of the screenplay, in terms of the tone of the movie, and ultimately in terms of the acting, the inspiration, in many cases, was a direct result of the people in the parts we were playing, right? So the reporters were, in fact, the inspiration, and they are just that way. I mean, if you, the movie even gets more interesting if you meet the actual people because they really capture the essence of each one well, of these Well, I'm sure reporters. they'll be out talking to people as you guys promote the film. They have come out something. a few times. And we had this amazing, I will say, a really great moment in Toronto where we screened the movie. The movie was screened very well. I walked out on stage. I introduced the six actors who play the six lead reporters and two, or four reporters and two editors. And the place went crazy because that's a great line upright. And then I said, well, it's a special treat. I now have... The real heroes. Oh, of the movie, that's great! The six reporters of the spotlight team, including Marty Barron, the editor of the paper at the time, was now at the Washington Post. And these, I introduced them, and they walked out. And the place went—it was like I'd introduced six astronauts. The place went ballistic, and 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 continued to gave them a standing ovation for their work, which the audience, I think, in that moment realized, man, these people do this. Without any acclaim. Well, and what was so great about the exploration is these people who are heroic, but who, like, you're an Irish Catholic guy making the movie, mm -hmm. grew up in an Irish Catholic family. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the church had a certain role or the place of the church and its import mm -hmm. really mattered. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you and I met, we've met, we've met a long time ago, but we met to talk about this movie once, you mm -hmm. know, before you wrote it. And I remember you talking about it and how important it was to you to to serve all of this, to not just like attack anything, but mm -hmm. to actually try to get to the heart of why this stuff really matters. Well, look, the movies, if anything, it is a journalism movie, right? And and maybe, and I think what's been so far interesting talking about this movie, it works on two avenues. On one, it's a journalism movie. On the other, it's a, a movie about institutional abuse, specifically in this case, the Catholic Church. But yeah, having been raised Catholic, being Irish American heritage, having gone to Boston College, having lived in Boston, I did feel like this was a story I could tell. And that uh, specifically, I thought I could bring a certain amount of empathy and humanity to humanity to it because I feel like this isn't about bashing the church, right? This is really about getting to the truth. And I think to do that, you have to recognize that there's, there is just, it's not a black and white issue. It's incredibly gray. And I think as we dug into our investigation of their investigation, what was most compelling is this idea of societal deference and complicity. The idea that these massive crimes, and this is a massive institutional crime that sadly is still happening today, they don't happen in a vacuum that it does take a village for these crimes to exist and persist. And for me, when we tapped into that, my co-writer, Josh Singer, and I, on this particular one, the project took on a whole new sense of relevance and urgency. You know, Well, sure, because you can substitute the government. You can substitute any big organization that just rolls forward. Or, that starts or to individual. believe. Or say again. Or individual. Yes. You know. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, organism, any kind of an organism. Yeah, like you know, that. David Carr, who sadly, you may yeah. know, passed away a couple months yes. ago, I thought was a brilliant writer, a wrote this now. great piece in the New York Times, probably three or four weeks before he passed away, on Bill Cosby. And if you, if you want to Google it, David Carr and Bill Cosby and read this article, read it. it's, it's a great because piece. What it talks about is exactly that. Carr asked the question, hey, why are we getting this now? Well, he was mad at himself and for every, having done that interview. Else. I remember the piece. Yep. He was mad at himself for exactly. having done the interview years before and knowing he should ask it. 
and not being able to ask exactly. it. And it, well, that's the great man thing too. And you have that great scene where I'm just blanking on that great character actor's name, David. Um, you know, a uh, Paul uh, Paul Gilfoy. Paul Gilfoy, great actor. Um, Paul Gilfoy. You know that incredible scene where he's yeah. looking at our, yeah. our heroes. Yeah, and you can feel in that scene. Uh, it would be so easy for you to just paint him as pure evil, right? And their actions are evil, right? But the actions of the the, the cover up was an evil thing, no right. matter what, right? Exactly. But the way that he lays out his arguments about right. the purpose right. of the church, right. about why, about balancing the equities, right. that kind of mission creep right. is endemic of like the worst decisions we've made as a society yeah. and as humans um, and to we, forgive uh, yeah. monstrous things and it, because we think, well... It'll be better right. overall. Right. And, and look, and a lot of these, these aren't usually just one big bad person or one big bad decision. It's a lot of small bad decisions, a lot of subtle bad decisions, a lot of nudges, winks, a lot of looking the other way, a lot of ignoring the smoke. It's a lot of these just bad choices we make collectively. Why usually? That's a compelling question. Is it because the because to address it just takes too much work and it's just too, too horrific to actually recognize, or is it something more than but, that? Uh, but I think, and I understand why you're talking about it in this way, and it's true, mm -hmm. but the movie avoids being polemical and avoids, right. I think, being preaching right. because of the self-doubt. Instead of painting these reporters as certain and as heroic the whole time, I think what I love about the film is that... You see the cost this has to them, not just the sort of societal cost. You kind of do away with that with just a couple of the characters, the idea of, oh, not wanting to pay the price in, in the community. Right. But they're at war with themselves over their final little bit of idealism they didn't even know they had, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Hero worship they forgot mm -hmm. even was even driving the bus for them. Yep. And I imagine that that was a lot. I don't know how you found that or where you found that in it or if the reporters talked to you about it, but... The those nights where they're wrestling with what actually matters to them as human beings mm -hmm. is, I think, at the heart of, of 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 what it actually costs you as a person to do something mm -hmm. brave. Mm -hmm. Don't you think? I, I think so. I mean, we have to remember that you know these are just. I mean, what I love my sort of deeper understanding of, of real journalists, high level, high end journalism is it's just these guys are so blue collar in their approach. Right. <laughs> they get up in the morning. They live in these communities. They love these. These reporters and editors love this city, the city of Boston. They, they knew more about it than most of us, uh, than most of their readership, probably. And because they cared and, and taking on this story took a, a deep emotional Well, because toll. they realized that their own institute, I just was even talking about yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking about uh, replaying it in my mind. I mean, they realized that their own institution was as complicit as the church. If not deferential, possibly complicit. And I well, think that's a good you, question. So your movie says complicit. Right. Your uh, movie says that by being, your movie says, because they, you have the characters say it. They mm -hmm. say, if we miss this those years back, it's inexcusable. I mean, mm -hmm. the, right? They do say, yeah. wait, we, we couldn't have. In fact, you know, for the longest time in the movie, yeah. the guy's going... We can't have missed it because if we did, it's it's not good. It's not acceptable. But look, that is a little bit of the. There's two sides of that story, right? It's a little bit the occupational hazard of of, of journalism, right? Uh, missing things fall through the cracks. It's human. Like you don't get every story when you should. So I acknowledge that's part of it. The other question it raises: What was the culture of the city and of the paper at that time? Yeah, that might who were they serving? That, and who that, were they serving? That might have allowed that to happen. Who were they serving? Because what did they believe? Right. I was thinking about this as I was reading the New York Times cover story from. Uh, 
by the time this is up a couple of weeks ago, about Abbottabad and what really happened there. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw it, but you know, Seymour Hirsch wrote Just this thing. Just started to read it today. And there's I, a great rebuttal today uh, by that author. Is by it? Mark Bowden? Yeah. Yeah, check it out. But I what's know. interesting is that both of these journalists, even in the article, Bowden is saying, I don't think this is possible. Even in the big article, mm-hmm. he's saying, I don't think this is possible. Mm-hmm. And Seymour Hirsch, who's a legendary great journalist, right. is sort of saying, look, you, we have to be willing to question whether right. it could have happened this right. way. And I kept thinking about your movie. Yeah, that's interesting. And I was thinking, well... Intent. When will we know? Right. We're not going to know today. Right. You're right. We're five years away. Right. right? We're, I mean, we're four years from when that happened. Right. Are we going to know in ten more years? I don't know. Look, I know when we sat down off the record with a couple of reporters who work there. One in particular, and she doesn't mind going on the record, Eileen McNamara, who's referenced in the movie. Uh, we asked her, "Hey, you guys, the paper did a. This is an amazing story for them, and they did a hell of a lot of good work." And we said, "Do you think there's anything after two years of reporting on this they missed?" And she said, point blank, I think we should have asked the question, why didn't we get it sooner? <laughs> That's the only question we didn't ask. And it speaks to exactly what we're talking about. The movie and asks the question. Ultimately, it does. Listen, I promised you I'd get you out of here in an hour, and it's been more than an hour, so I'm going to let You're you go. You're a man of your word. Um, almost. It's a little long. But it's valuable. Look, man, I I am proud to call you a pal. And I got to say, you've really stepped up and, and all the sort of promise and talent that you showed on the first Three movies. I'm not. I'm not leaving the cobbler out, though it's I sort okay. of am. Yep. I think you really you delivered everything. You know, when I, I remember walking out of seeing the screening of the film, and I said to my wife Amy and to my creative partner Dave, I said that movie Spotlight is every single thing I would ever want to do in making a movie, and that's not something I've ever said on this podcast about high praise from movie. you. I take that very, but high it praise. is. It's you. You have delivered. Uh, I think for someone like me who grew up, you know, I love all the President's Men and. The Insider is one of my favorite movies of the last 15 years, and I would stack this up against those two movies any day. And uh, congratulations. I I can't wait to throw darts at you when you're up there getting a whole bunch of (laughs) – on the television. Be like, look at Tommy up there putting on ass. Look at Tommy thinking uh, thinking he's a big shot in that tuxedo. (laughs) Look at him up there. Incredibly uh, kind. This has been fun. I always love talking with you. Good. Hey, Tom McArdle, I'm just going to say this to you. He didn't disparage you as a poker player, and he had nothing to do with the sort of general – Tommy Tommy took your money a few times at the table, didn't he? No, we never – no. That's not true. We never played. Uh, okay. We never played poker. We were going to. And it has nothing to do with the way the editing room would ever smell or anything like that. Tom guys, guys. Would never. Guys, you were some of our noisiest neighbors. Remember we had to talk to you about that? You and Lou talked to when David. we were cutting next to each oh other? Oh, my God. They're loud. You guys are loud. It's like a party over there. Tom likes his quiet. Oh, you're making your little micro movie <laughs> about all oh, the little precious reporters chasing oh down the gosh. thing. And I'm making billions, yeah, man. Billions. Sorry. Literally. I'm making billions. Yeah. Hey, Tom McCarthy, are you on uh, Twitter? I'm not. You don't do any of that. I'm the worst. No, you're, that's why. So he's, listen, he's doing his thing. You can find me, though, at Brian Compliment on Twitter. He'll pass it on to me. You can email me at themomentbk at gmail.com. I will not pass stuff on to Tom um, because I'm not going to bother him. I want him sitting there thinking about the next movie. uh, So it'll be uh, another great one. Tom, thanks a lot, people. Go see Spotlight. Go to the theater for this one, though. Worth seeing it on the screen, as I'm sure I'll do at the New York premiere that Tom's going to fight me to. Thank you, Brian. See you.